And I hope if, if you weren't here last week, I would encourage you to go back and, and catch up because Malachi, it's a short book. We've only got four chapters to go through the month of December. But the way that he speaks directly to where the people of God are at and the reminders that he gives, I, I keep getting challenged that this is just not how we tend to operate. I think I, I asked at one point in the sermon last week, you know, when's the last time when you got into an argument you started with, hey, I love you, and, and I've, I've chosen you to, to spend life with me. And I realized that it's, Malachi does not, he doesn't come uh, intuitive to me. I want to project that on you guys. But the way that Malachi and God address the people of the Lord, it doesn't, it doesn't seem to feel like it does a lot. And I don't want to tip too much away. We will see God's people respond later in the book. But for now, for now, we just kind of get to sit in the middle of this tension going, okay, God, what you're doing in Malachi might not be what I would do if I was trying to stir up a group of people to get them to move in a direction. But it is pretty cool, pretty cool how God starts by really just calling his people to remember who they are. If you remember where Israel was, and we talked about this a little bit last week in Malachi 1, Israel is kind of in this, in between a rock and a hard place. The, the future that they thought was coming, the way they thought their prophecies were going to come true, it wasn't happening. So they were pretty frustrated. And they were also looking back at their past going, man, we used to have it so good. I can't believe we don't have that anymore. And it, it really just led them to be bitter and frustrated about everything. The future wasn't what they thought it was. They had already let go of the past. And God says, this can't be. This can't be the attitude that my people have if we're going to actually show the world what reconciliation looks like. He says, i, I got to wake you up from your, your frustrated nostalgia, your complacent bitterness. And he shows up and he says, remember who you are. And we talked about how just, it, I, don't, I don't know the science well enough to say what it does, but at least for me, it, it almost triggers something in your brain when you remember who you are that kind of snaps you out of whatever loop that you're spiraling in. So today we're going to unpack this a little bit more in Malachi 2 to say, okay, if we have to remember who we are, last week we kind of got a big picture. God reminds his people he's loved them and he's chosen them, but God's going to hone in a little bit and say, this is who you were, Israel. This is who I made you to be. And if, if we're going to kind of read ourselves as the people of God uh, today looking at this message, then it's not too far for us to be able to say, okay, then this is a reminder from God of who he is calling his people to be. We're going to start here in Malachi chapter 2, and there's two pictures we're going to see this morning, church. The first is that God made us to be priests who make peace, and the second, partners who bear faithful fruit. You and I when we are right with God, living out our faith in the community of the church, in our world today, what God has called us to be, priests who make peace and partners who bear faithful fruit. So this, this is coming from Malachi 2, beginning in verse 1, where God continues. He says, And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. 
Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and will spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. Now true instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. And you say, well, why does he do this? Why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit. And do not be faithless. Fathers, we come before you this morning. May we receive your word with the joy and the peace that you desire it to come with. Sometimes, Lord, it's really hard when we're reading, especially through places like the Old Testament prophets, where you know, we're, we're being confronted with the reality that we're missing out on something. Lord, either we're not, we're not doing something quite right or more often than not, our hearts are not in the right place. It's, it's, it's weird, Father, to try to find joy and find peace in the midst of that. God, may you help us in our hearts this morning count being right with you, being at peace with you greater than anything else we could pursue or we could achieve or try to do in our lives, Lord. And may as we, we find that peace in you, may we trust the joy that you promise is waiting for life with you in your presence, in your spirit. And it is in your holy name, Lord, we ask this this morning. Amen. So guys, there's two pictures in here that when God is saying to his people, remember who you are. He gives two pictures of them and says, this is who you are. The first picture is that of being a priest who makes peace. Okay, God begins in verse 1 saying, okay, priests, I'm now explicitly talking to you. And if you remember when we were reading through Exodus and we kind of referenced 1 Peter a couple times, there's, there's a connection in Scripture between you and I, kind of the church today, being that, 
that chosen priesthood, the, the royal priesthood of the Old Testament. So this, this is kind of also a message for us, and we'll see how that we get to that in a little bit too. But watch the call that God gives to his priests in this chapter. It begins in verse 2 and verse 3, that he wants his priests to listen and take it in their hearts to honor his name. Remember last week we said God is, more often than not, he's more concerned with the heart than with the actions. And this, this refrain comes right back here. He says, take it to heart to honor my name. He says, if you fail to do this, I'm going to end up cursing your blessings. So kind of continuing the priestly imagery, God's not, again, he's not coming after his people because they're doing the wrong thing. He's coming after him because he says, look, your heart is not right. And even if your heart was in the right place, what you're doing is still not honoring to me. So he's coming for the heart. Verse 4 and 5, he continues, and he goes back to remind Israel of the covenant that he made with Levi. We didn't talk too much about the specific tribes of Israel when we were going through Exodus, but it's, we'll touch on it really briefly now that you know it comes up right here. God reminds his people he made a covenant with Levi, Levi being one of the sons of Jacob, and he says that this Levi and his descendants were to be the, the priesthood tribe of Israel. They were going to be the priests who kind of carried out all the stuff that took place in the temple. It said, okay, this is what it looks like to be right with God. And he says, so what did this covenant that I made with Levi look like? Verse 5, we're told it was a covenant of life and peace. And it says later in verse 5, it was also a covenant of fear. This, again, this idea in the Old Testament, fearing God being kind of just standing in awe of who God is. So much in awe that we, we respect, we trust, we allow him to lead. So the core of who the priests were supposed to be, from just the first five verses, these people who they would stand every day so in awe of God that they could not do anything with their lives other than, hey, I want you to be made right with God. Hey, God, please make me right with you. Just this life of striving for peace with God because we are so in awe of who God is. This, is. this is what God says. This is what I was after in my priests. And practically what this was supposed to be in verse 6 and verse 7, God says, look, true instruction was in his mouth and no wrong was found on his lips. Now, again, we read this in English and we think, oh, this is telling people what to do, right? So we'll know we're in the covenant when we're saying the right things or we're trying to get people to do the right things. That's just what it sounds like in English. The Hebrew there for instruction is the word Torah, which some of you guys may have heard that word pop up. That's the name for the first five books of the Old Testament that Moses is you know, widely believed to have written. So it's the word Torah is really referencing the law, like who God is, his word, the communication of who he is and what he desires of his people, the first five books of the Old Testament. This is what is, is being referenced when it says true instruction. And the word for lips is one of the beautiful, I mean, it's, we've talked about this a lot in Exodus, but the Hebrew language used words to communicate pictures a lot. So when they talk about lips, it does literally mean lips. But the, the figurative picture that goes with it is almost the idea of a border. 
that's surrounding something. And the lips would then be like the gateway into the border. So it's, not, it's more than just, okay, we have the right word and we're teaching the right things to get people to do the right actions. What God is saying is, no, my priests, true instruction was in him. Like it was bound up in them who God was and what he was after. And it was no wrong was found on his lips that they were a living example of who God was to the people. This is what God says, if you are my priests... You're going to show the world who I am. You're going to show the world what it looks like to live at peace with me. You're going to help the world see this. And that, that echo continues in verse 7 and verse 8. It says that he walked with me, talking of Levi, he walked with me in peace and uprightness. And he turned many from iniquity, right? That Levi strove to be right with God. And in doing that, he was also leading other people to strive to be right with God. This, this wasn't just a, okay, if I'm right with God, then I don't have to pay attention to anything else. No, Levi turned many from iniquity. He led people, guided them away from iniquity into this peace and uprightness with God. So what we're seeing in the first seven verses here, when God is speaking about his priests, he says, Israel, look, look. You were made to be my priests on earth. You were made to stand just so in awe of me that everything you did was to strive to be right with me and to lead others to be right. And the language of rightness here is the language of peace, a covenant of life and peace. So that kind of got me thinking this week, okay, is this just something that God wants or wanted Israel to do? Or does this idea carry out further in Scripture? And Jesus could kind of say it was cheating. You knew the answer was coming. But he picks up on this. When he describes his call to his disciples, he, he says, I have received all power and authority on heaven and earth. Kind of saying you don't need to concern yourself with taking it. I have all power and authority on heaven and on earth. What you are to do, my people, is to go and make disciples. And you think about what was the life of the disciple? What did that look like? It was Jesus showing them what does it look like to live at peace, right? Live right with God and to lead others in doing likewise. So Jesus says, that's, that's what I'm asking you to do, church. In John 15, he says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my peace if you do what I command you. He says, not only is this just a good idea of something God's people are to do, he says, this is it. Like, like we are laying down our lives to ensure that people have the opportunity to be made at peace with one another and with God. So as we're celebrating this birth of the Messiah that's coming up in just a short while, God is saying, look, I'm not really done with this picture here in Malachi 2. He says, I'm showing up saying, this is what my priests are to do. But that idea is not just going to die with them, church. It's going to keep going. And it made me think of the question this week, okay, but why does God care so much about this? Right? Why is God showing up and saying, priests, you have to get this right. You have to get this right. Why does God care? Verse 8, verse 9. 
God tells his priests, well, you have turned aside from the way, right? So what happens when God's priests forget who they are? It says, you have led, you've caused many to stumble by your instruction. So instead of being the living embodiment of who God is and what he's after to show the world that, he says, you've caused people to stumble. The Hebrew there gives the idea of falling short. You can think of other verses in scripture that's speaking about falling short of something. Paul says in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So God is telling his priests, look, when you forget who you are, you may think that you are still living in my image and living in my design, but you might not even be aware of how you're actually leading others in sin. And he carries this further. He says, you've corrupted the covenant. You have forgotten who you are, so you've forgotten what it was even supposed to look like. He says, one of the examples of how you do this, he says, you don't keep my ways, but you show partiality in your instruction. So instead of living out the heart of God, you could say in all things, in all matters, to all people, he says, well, now... Now you're starting to kind of get to the point of saying, well, you know, if we, if we really make it a point to emphasize living for God over here, or, you know, God wants us to do X, Y, and Z, if we really talk about X and Y more than Z, we can get some things out of this for ourselves. God says, you've, you've left my heart completely behind. In fact, now you are not living out my heart to people. You're picking and choosing where you would like to live out my heart, where you would like to live out my image in a way that's going to benefit yourself. And the end result of this, God says in verse 9, and so I make you despised and abased before all the people. So instead of looking like God, God basically says, I will make you despised on the earth. It makes me go, okay, I can see where there may be some echoes of that today, but this is especially convicting because as I'm reading this, I'm going, but, but the context of Malachi 2 is not God talking to unbelievers. It is God talking to his people. God is saying, look, should it surprise you? In fact, I'm allowing the world to despise you because you you have forgotten who I made you to be. When, when we stop being priests who pursue peace, the ones who, hey, if, if we have the spirit dwelling within us, we have the nature of God in us, and God is desiring to lead us to make peace with one another and to help God make peace with his world, when we leave that behind, God says, should it, should it surprise you when you don't look any different, you don't sound any different, you struggle with the exact same things that those who don't have Christ do? And God says, look, I, I have to have you remember who you are because if, if you have forgotten who you are, then what, how's the world going to see me? And it's easy, church, when we read this, to kind of think, oh, right, we've got the Pharisees in the New Testament, we've got the people of Israel in the Old Testament, pictures of these people who were supposed to have known better, they knew what the promise was, and they fell short. We don't want to be like them. Well, church, 
kind of the flip side from Exodus of being called today the priesthood, is that this message is directed toward us. God has made you and I to be priests who make peace. And when we fall short of doing that, church, God says, I, I will make you despised and abased. He says, like, you are made to bear my image. I can't have my, my image being slandered like this. But there is a second picture here, too. We're priests who make peace, but we are also partners who bear faithful fruit. We're also partners. And God is going to use the language of marriage in the last bit of the chapter here to kind of show what this looks like. Now, and I really want to quickly give a disclaimer. I'm not saying that this passage does not speak to marriage, okay? Certainly that's in there. But if we start from this context of God is speaking to his people, to his believers, because they have forgotten who they are, and in doing so, the world is missing out on who God is, then I, I just want us to say, as we read this again, I know the first place our minds go is this is talking about marriage, but God is using marriage as a picture of something a little bit, a little bit bigger than this, this morning, okay? If we look at verses 10 through 16, just looking first at verses 10 through 12, you see that God is pointing out, look, my covenant was not just for my priests. So right off the bat, lest we forget that there's, lest we start thinking there's some like spiritually elite, and that's the priest, God says, no, 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 no. This, this was for all the descendants of Abraham. This is what I had for all of my people to do. I have actually made all of you to be priests, which is the picture we get from Scripture. He says, but you've not been faithful to this covenant that I gave you. And he describes our unfaithfulness to the covenant as a spouse who left their marriage to go and marry, in verse 11, the daughter of a foreign god. And it's, it's this weird picture in verse 11 and verse 12 of God then saying, and then you try to come back to me with your other covenant and still act as if everything is okay. Still bring offerings, still bring sacrifices. He says, but then it gets worse. Then you weep and you go, God, why can't you just like move on and accept? Like, I, I really wanted to do this. Why can't we just be okay? This is, this is the picture that we get in verse 13 and verse 14. And God basically says, why do you think I'm mad right now? If you broke covenant from me, went and go made a covenant somewhere else, and then still kept trying to act as if you were faithful to the first covenant, God says, could, could you understand how that might be a slap in the face to me? How that, that might be a little insulting to the God of the universe. He says, look, you've broken your covenant with me, verse 14. He says, you've turned your back on the union that I gave you in my spirit, verse 15. And again, like as I'm describing this, I know the first place our minds go is we're thinking about the picture of marriage. But there's, there is something bigger at play here, okay? If you were to read through the Old Testament and in one word kind of describe what the relationship God had between himself and his people was, the word would be covenant, right? When we hear covenant today, we think more along the lines of contract. I, I, and this is not... This is not necessarily wrong. I, I don't know how many of you guys outside of marriage do we even use the word covenant. We use it here in our church membership stuff, 
But really, we, we're used to contracts. We enter into contracts on a fairly regular basis. Contract implies, like, it's in terms of duty. You do this for me, I'll do this for you. I pay you this, you give me this. It's, it's a contract. So there's things that are taking place and it, some sort of exchange. And I kind of hate to compare covenant to contract because covenant is infinitely different than contract. A contract is an exchange of duties. A covenant is a promise of identity. A, a contract, when I sign that, I'm saying I'm showing up to do this for someone else. A covenant is I am committing to be someone for someone else. When God shows up and establishes his covenant in the Old Testament with Abraham, with Isaac and Jacob, every single time he shows up, he says, I am the Lord, your God. He shows up and says, this is who I am. Abraham, I want to be in a covenant with you. This is who I am. Because of that, Abraham, this is who I am asking you to be. Would you be in this covenant with me? Right? This is the picture of what faith is like in the Old Testament. And so God, remember, he's not talking to unbelievers in Malachi 2. He's talking to people who had made that covenant with him. They were descendants of the covenant. They knew that God was not looking for them to just walk through the motions of do the right sacrifices. They knew in their history. God says, look, this is who I am. Israel, because this is who I am, this is who I'm asking you to be. Will you be this? And God says, you used to say yes. And now Israel has gotten to the point where they've said, well, actually, we don't really want to be in that covenant anymore. We, we don't want to be that. We would rather be over here. And, and I mean, the whole history of Israel is they kind of just choose over and over and over again. We'd rather be here. We'd rather be here. We'd rather have this. We'd rather do this. This idea of I'd rather be someone else. I'd rather be something else. What's the problem with this? God says in verse 15, well, there was a point to the covenant. I, I didn't just ask you to be someone and then nothing happens afterwards. He says, there was something I was after in the covenant. Verse 15, what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. Again, in the context of marriage, there's something bigger going on here. The Hebrew for offspring is much more commonly translated in the Old Testament as seed. I'm after fruit. I'm after like, if you know who I am, you're, you're going to start to take on my image. You're going to take on my likeness. It makes us think about when Jesus is telling the parable of scattering the seed, right? The idea of we, we want to be that fertile soil where the seed takes root and it grows and it bears fruit. The language of fruit bearing, guys, I don't have enough time to cover it all this morning, but that is like one of the most consistent images all throughout Scripture is fruit bearing fruit-bearing, fruit-bearing. God's saying, look, if we're in covenant together, you're not just, nothing just doesn't happen. You are bearing fruit. It takes us all the way back to Genesis 1, where God says, look, I have made all of mankind to bear my image, right? This is not just something for a couple people to do. So if a man starts to decide to bear the image of something else, we literally are not functioning 
as we were made to. In fact, the, the play on words that we see here in Hebrews is, is kind of, he goes back and says, look, I made you for a covenant of life and peace and reverence. And instead, we're told in verse 16, you cover your garment with violence. You make people fear you. You don't make peace with one another. In fact, you, you snuff out violence. You snuff out life. It's the opposite. So when God shows up to his people in Malachi 1 and says, I have to have you remember who you are, Malachi 2 says, look, people, this is who I made you to be, Israel. I made you to be priests who make peace and partners who bear fruit. And when we consider kind of what do we do with this, God actually does tell us what is he asking his people to do. Verse 15, verse 16, guard yourselves in your spirit, and do not be faithless. The same call, church, is what we saw in Luke. See, when God looks at his world that's broken apart from him in sin, right here is he showing up to condemn all the nations for the wrong things they're doing. Now, certainly there are points where God does that in the Old Testament, okay? But right here, God's not concerned with that. He's showing up to his people saying, what are you doing? You have forgotten who you're made to be. When God shows up into the New Testament world, right, about 430 years after the book of Malachi is when the events that we're reading about in Luke each Sunday take place. So when God shows up and nothing has changed in 430 years, does he try a different tactic because the world is no different? No. He shows up to John or to, to Mary and to Joseph and says, Look, you're going to go through something to the world that's going to look very odd. And I'm not telling you to go make sure everybody around you knows how wicked everything else is going. I need you to be faithful to me. Mary, Joseph, despite the looks you're going to get for this pregnancy that's about to take place, be faithful. Trust me. And in doing so, the Messiah came. To Zechariah and to Elizabeth, they, he says, look, I know you guys are old. People are not expecting this to be a possibility anymore. Be faithful to me. And they are able to give birth to a son, John, who we know in the New Testament, John the Baptist. He even tells John, John, you're going to be quite the character. You're going to be known for, you know, thousands of years later that the first things we know about John the Baptist, other than that he baptized people, he's the guy who ate locusts and honey, that wore the wild clothing. He was out in the wilderness, kind of like a, almost like a weird mountain guy. You're like, is that, that's the guy that you want? Well, John, don't worry. In your faithfulness to me, you're going to prepare people to receive the Messiah. And Jesus picks up this calling and he continues it with his disciples. And, and one of the most clear passages that we have in the New Testament, the, the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus is saying, this is what it looks like to follow me, he says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 3, he says, Why do you seek the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, well, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? He says, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly 
to take the speck out of your brother's eye. It's not a call to overlook or just neglect the speck. But he says that, that cannot be your top priority. He says that cannot be your main focus. That Abigail shared with me this week just how medically she saw this happen in her life because when she was a girl, her eye crossed when she was younger. And it just was kind of like a weird thing that happened overnight. And her parents immediately took her to the doctor. They checked everything out. They did surgery. But the doctor was telling them, we're glad you caught this early and you did something about it. Because when one eye crosses, the brain stops trying to use that eye. The, the brain's like, that, that is definitely not telling me what I need to know to make wise decisions. So the brain stops using the bad eye and it only starts using the good eye. So to Abigail, she can still see right? If I close my eye, I can still see y'all just fine. But what happens when you only look through things with one eye? First off, right now, I can't see anybody on the right side of the room, okay? My peripheral vision is shot. So you, you don't get a full picture. Even though this room is this big, when I only see one eye, I've got this big a picture. Well, your depth perception also gets thrown off, right? Which becomes difficult when you're doing things like driving, right? Your, your eyesight is dependent upon having both eyes. But if you don't address it, the doctor was telling Abigail's parents over time, the brain will eventually let that eye go blind because it stops using the eye completely. So when Jesus says, look, you have to take the log out of your own eye first, he says, I know that with just one eye, you can still see. And based off of it, you still may be able to see a lot out of your one good eye. Your spiritual life might still look really good to you. But you're not even aware of just how much you are missing because of the log in your eye. Just as God called his people, first off, he says, look, my priests are not right. You have to get your, this heart right. Jesus shows up and says, look, we have to have this heart right if we're going to lead others well. So today, as we're hearing, if God made me to be a priest who makes peace or a partner who bears faithful fruit, where am I falling short in this? Church, this might just be the first question we have to start with today. Where am I falling short? Practically, where am I not pursuing peace with someone? And it has radically changed the way that I respond to situations when I try to put things in context of, am I pursuing peace there? And if no, then I'm probably falling short of something. Where am I not pursuing peace? Also, where am I not bearing fruit? You know, do I spend more time trying to point out where I see other people not bearing fruit? Or do I ask myself, where am I not bearing fruit? Perfect example of this, the things that we tend to get most angry about and what other people are doing usually often tells us where we are failing to bear fruit. Ironically, you guys know I work for Blacksburg Transit. I'm a professional bus driver. I teach people to drive the bus. I have to be good at driving. It makes me irritated to no end to watch other people drive. Now, I promise if I ever ride with you in your car, I will not judge your driving, okay? I promise but I cannot stand how other people drive. It's one of the biggest irritating things that happens to me. Yesterday, yesterday in the span of two hours, I put the car into a wrong gear. I went forwards instead of backwards and accidentally rolled into my friend's car parked right in front of me. 
We were a four feet away, so both vehicles are fine. But then after that, proceeded to go get on 81, and I think I cut two or three people off really badly, okay? So me being very irritated, knowing all the safety issues and knowing how you're supposed to drive, did not realize how poorly I was driving. So if you notice that there's things in your life that tend to really get under your skin and make you mad about what somebody else is doing, that may tell you something about, ooh, I may have a log in my own eye. I might have to turn around in two days and teach someone to drive a bus. I should probably make sure I'm driving right before I'm going to be teaching someone how to drive. So maybe it starts with us this morning, and this is something we need to consider. But the second thing is don't miss the call from Malachi of how this does impact the way we relate to other people. Because if the focus of Malachi 2 is God saying, I need you to be right with me. I need you to understand you are priests who make peace. You are partners who bear fruit. This does shape the way we relate to other people. The easiest way I was thinking about it this week is if you've ever flown and you've looked out the window and you've noticed that there's people on the, the, the tarmac or the the runways, they've got the neon vests and the orange cone paddles and they're directing traffic. I didn't know that the, the actual name for that job is an airplane marshal. Uh, these people are professionally trained, like all the signals mean something, to show the plane where to go, right? Whether it's to find the runway or to navigate, it looks like craziness to me to sit on the plane navigating how they pull up into a gate and where they park the plane and how they line everything up. Just I have no clue how to do that. And I'm not sure from the pilot's perspective that you can see that much more easier. But when you have people down on the ground that are waving at you, that tells you exactly where you are and what you need to do. Very simply, do you think that these airplane marshals are trained to tell the pilot where all the obstacles are that they need to miss or tell the pilot the one way that they need to go? If I spent my whole life waving, no, don't go over there. That's a swamp. Don't go over there. That's a forest. First, they may be confused by my hand signs, and they may go that direction anyways. But it doesn't do me any good if they miss the swamp on the left and go straight into the ditch on the right. The only way the plane's going to miss all the obstacles is if the marshal points them in the direction that they need to go in. Okay, so when God is saying, I need my heart to be right, I need you guys to be made right with me, he's not saying, look, as priests, your job is not to go out and point out all the obstacles to everybody else. Don't go out and say, that's wrong over there, and that's wrong over there, because that does not tell them where to put the plane. Just pointing out one obstacle on this side, the plane may end up in an obstacle on the other side. He says, no, the pilot has to know. There's not that much time. People are getting angry. We have to get off the plane. Where's this plane supposed to go? So maybe today we need to ask, in the way that we relate to others, where am I more focused on trying to get someone else to change or understand something rather than bringing them to know the heart of God? Do we spend most of our time on our interactions with people just correcting, you're not doing the right thing, you're not saying the right thing, or do we bring them into life with us so they actually get to see who God is? And I think that the one that convicted me this week, where is it hard to trust that God is doing the same reconciliation work in others who know him, or he's desiring to do in those who don't as the work that he's doing in me?
because very frequently, the engineer in me loves to come out and fix things. Correcting the wrong mistake, the wrong thing said, the wrong thing done. But that doesn't always fit in to the reconciliation work that God is doing. Where do we trust that God is doing that work? That he has made us to be priests who pursue peace and partners who bear faithful fruit. So let's consider our own growth this morning, church, as we pray. My God, I bless thee that thou hast given me the eye of faith to see thee as Father, to know thee as a covenant God, to experience thy love planted in me. For faith is the grace of union by which I spell out my entitlement to thee. Faith casts my anchor upwards where I trust in thee and engage thee to be my Lord. Be pleased to live and move within me, God breathing in my prayers, inhabiting my praises, speaking in my words, moving in my actions, living in my life, causing me to grow in grace. Lord, thy goodness has helped me believe, but my faith is weak and it wavers. Its light is often dim, its steps often totter, its increase often slow, its backslidings often frequent. It should scale the heavens, but it lies groveling in the dust. Lord, fan this divine spark into growing flame. When faith sleeps, my heart becomes an unclean thing, the fount of every loathsome desire, the cage of unclean lusts, all fluttering to escape, the noxious tree of deadly fruit, the open wayside of earthly tares. Lord, awaken my faith to put forth its strength until all heaven fills my soul and all impurity is cast out. Father, forgive us. We want to be at peace with you. We want to live at peace with others. We want your fruit in our lives. And we desperately want that in the lives of others. God, may we trust that doing everything we can to keep this heart will lead us to join you and glorify you in the work that you are not doing just in our hearts or in the hearts of people who know you, but you are desiring to do in all of your creation, Lord. In your holy name we pray, amen.